in his excellent book, Living Proof, Jim Peterson tells the story of Abrahau. Abrahau was an agricultural student at the University of Paraná in Brazil. His purpose for being in school was not so much to get an education as it was to stimulate political unrest. He was a communist. Sounds kind of familiar uh, for America now, but I won't uh, go into that. But uh, it happened that his roommate in the student housing, uh, the boarding house where he lived, was a new Christian. His name was Jark. Jark invited Abrahau to one of our Bible studies, Peterson writes. He says, in the following weeks, Abrahau never missed a meeting. He did his best to create as much confusion as possible. I entertained the idea of asking him not to attend any more discussions, but I, but I decided to make one last attempt to get through to him. After our next study, as Abrahau and I were chatting, I asked him, what kind of odds will you give me that I am right and that you are wrong, that God does exist? He laughed and replied, none. And by the way, I'm not going to attempt a Brazilian accent this morning. That would be a disaster. Uh, then I said, Peterson says, do you mean to tell me that you have examined all known knowledge and have researched everything unknown and that you have scoured the universe and now you stand before me saying, relax, there is no God? He replied, I wouldn't say that. I said, then you have to admit there is a possibility that I am right and you are wrong. And he conceded. And since there is that possibility, the only rational thing for you to do is to check it out, to see which of us is right. He asked, how do I do that? I replied, well, anyone doing serious research bypasses secondary sources of what other people have said about a subject and examines the original data. He asked, what are the original sources? And I said, the Bible. He said, I don't believe the Bible. I said, well, the Bible is the only original source we Christians possess. If you can disprove the Bible, you win. He asked, what are you proposing? I explained, my offer is to show you where to look and to help you understand what it says. Abrahau accepted my offer, and we set a date for our first meeting. I introduced him to the Gospel of John. We started by my asking him to read the first three verses, John 1, 1 through 3. I asked Abrahau if he understood what was being said, and he didn't. With a little help, he realized the passage was talking about Jesus Christ. When he understood that the Bible claimed Jesus was eternal and that he had created all things, Abrahau was ready to fight. I diffused his arguments by saying, I'm not asking you to believe or to agree yet with what is written here. I just want to make sure you understand what it says. Do you? He replied, yes. But I said, good. Let's go on to the next paragraph. As we worked our way through the next passages over the following weeks, Abrahau didn't appear to budge an inch. He assigned every claim about Christ to legends or exaggerated accounts. Uh, 
But Peterson says this, I stuck to the single objective of helping him understand what the Bible was saying about who Jesus was. And I think that's the exact right thing to do. Our single objective should be Christocentric, Jesus-centered. Our message, our good news, our gospel is all about Jesus. And that is exactly what John 5 communicates to us. Let's turn there, please. Uh, If you have one of the John uh, summary sheets, my summary statement for this is, because of who Jesus is, he offers eternal life to all who believe. And there it is. That's a summary of John chapter 5. When we understand who Jesus is, his identity, it changes everything. It sets everything right and helps us understand reality. Now, the context of John chapter 5, of course, is the gospel of John, the entire gospel of John. And we can look at other contexts, such as the gospels or the New Testament. But the, the context of John chapter 1, or, or of John, the gospel of John, is really uh, kind of captured for us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the, the purpose statement of the book. John says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John 5 records one of those signs. In fact, chapters 2 through 12 are commonly referred to as the book of signs. And and they contain seven signs along with multiple claims Jesus made about his identity. They go hand in hand. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus turning the water into wine. That was labeled as the beginning of signs. In chapter 4, Jesus healed the nobleman's son. And that also was labeled as the second sign. So here in John John chapter 5, we have the third sign. And what I want you to see this morning, in addition to um, my, I, uh, my uh, study, my research, is just simply that anyone can read the Bible, in, in particular the Gospel of John, and understand it. Look at the main ideas I've included on the John Guide for this morning. Uh, number one, a sick man was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. You just read verses 1 through 9 and make an observation. What's it talking about? Well, it it tells us that a sick man was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. Second section, verses 10 through 18, is the Jews persecuted Jesus for making himself equal with God. And the rest of it, verses 19 through 47, which is maybe a little less obvious, but After reading it a few times, it becomes clear that Jesus is giving us five witnesses that testify of the identity of Jesus. So that doesn't take a scholar or a pastor or a professor to figure out. Just read and observe and write down some obvious facts, claims, truth. And I have a point in saying all this, and I'll come back to that. But let's start with that first main idea with, in verses 1 through 9, that a sick man was healed 
by Jesus on the Sabbath. Would you turn with me, please, to John chapter 5, verse 1. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So this is just a little interesting uh, geography and history. Uh, just kind of sets up the situation. Look at verse 3. And actually there are three sh- kind of shocking things in verses 3 through 5. Let me read that. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So I say shockers. Uh, maybe that's a little uh, exaggerated, but if you think about it, they're kind of shocking. First of all, uh, it, uh, John tells us a great number of disabled people uh, were there. The shocking part to me is that Jesus only healed one of them. And it's not the main point of the chapter, but I just wonder if some people might trip up on this idea and ask, why didn't Jesus heal everybody? Well, I don't know. I don't have all the answers for that. They're not given to us. What I do know, though, is that based on the Bible, God is good. God is good. And he has promised that someday he will remove the curse of sin. And, and everything that comes with that, pain, suffering, disease, cancer, the whole thing. He's promised that someday he will remove all that. That's his promise. The second shocker here is that there is no verse 4. I don't know if you noticed that, but in the NIV, which we're reading from for this series, uh, there's just a little four in brackets, and, and then there's a footnote. And the footnote, um, I'll, I'll let you read that. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Verses uh, 3 and 4. So there's a, there's a little bit of verse 3 that you might find in the King James, if you're reading the King James. Um, but then also verse 4 says, um, the, the footnote says, Some manuscripts include here, holy or in part, Paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. Verse 4, from time, to, uh, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, <clears throat> so that isn't there, but notice that the, uh, the NIV and other modern translations uh, didn't try to hide it from us as though there's some conspiracy here to remove parts of the Bible or something like that. The idea, when you look into it, is just that the, the, the belief is, of modern translators, is that somebody added those words at some point along the way because the oldest and best manuscripts don't contain those verses. That's the idea. So um, just as much as we don't want to add to the Bible or, or, or remove parts of the Bible. We also don't want to add parts of it that, that God didn't intend to be there. And uh, so also notice this. It doesn't change the meaning or the point of the passage at all. And that is true of 
all of those variations in the ancient manuscript tradition or the copies that we have of the Bible. We have great confidence that God has preserved his word through the manuscript tradition. If that subject interests you, uh, please come and talk to me. I can recommend some some things to read further. The third shocker is there in verse 5. The the one man Jesus is about to heal had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, I admit I, I can't relate Uh, But I do know that some of you can relate. A 38-year disability. What I can say, and I hope it helps, uh, I put under the first grace for us on that, that handout. And it just simply says, have hope and look to the great physician. Jesus compared himself to a physician in Matthew, Mark, and Luke clearly uh, referring to the healing of people from the sickness of sin, um, even though we know he can also heal people physically. I like that title for Jesus, though, because he never did promise to heal all sicknesses in this life. Uh, He has promised that he is good, as I said, and that he will remove the curse of sin and dry all tears and end all physical pain and and suffering eventually. Now, of course, Jesus can heal anyone at any time physically um, in this life, but we know for sure that he will heal everyone in the next life. So either way, uh, my, my humble suggestion, my humble counsel is to have hope And look to the great physician. Keep your eyes on him. In verses 6 through 9, we have the conversation between Jesus and this this, uh, invalid. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Uh, Let me stop there. Jesus saw him. Do you see that? I, I, I may be reading too much into the text. I just like that. I just like that. Jesus saw him, this, looking over this great number of people, Jesus saw this one particular person, and I think that's very comforting. Um, I think Jesus sees us. I think, I think Jesus cares about what each individual is going through. But, but then he asks him, do you want to get well? And, and you know, I don't know whether it, maybe it's supposed to cause us to chuckle a little bit or just say, what? You know, what a ridiculous question. Uh, But Jesus wasn't looking for information here. I believe Jesus was getting the man's attention. He wanted him to focus on him, on Jesus. And if you look at verse 7, you see why. Uh, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So like most of us, the man was focused on Uh, The wrong solution to his problem, Uh, the solution was Jesus, not the pool. And uh, when asked later in verse 13, he didn't even know who had healed him. So his focus wasn't right, and I think that's why Jesus asked that question. Uh, Look at verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Uh, 
I could time travel, I would love to be there for this, uh, this miracle and many others. But uh, just as lying there for 38 years was proof of his, the severity of his disability, get up, pick up your mat, and walk was the proof that he was healed. Uh, we're told that it happened at once. <laughs> at once. So beautiful. Just picture it. You know, on The Chosen, I'm sure they had a whole big scene for this, this party that would have taken place afterwards. But, but actually, John doesn't, doesn't go into that. He cuts right to the catalyst for the rest of the chapter, the rest of the conversation that we see happen here. He says at the end of verse 9, the day on which this took place, was a Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, you know, this was, this was uh, not supposed to, to be happening in a Jewish context. So that leads to the, the first truth I have there, truth about Christ. I, I want, and I want to highlight this before I go on to the whole Sabbath thing. Uh, Jesus did signs to confirm his identity. Jesus will make this exact point in verse 36. The whole flow of the chapter confirms that Jesus did signs to confirm his identity. He wasn't randomly doing miracles. Uh, Jesus did signs, as John called them. Uh, signs point to something. They provide information. These weren't random miracles to draw a crowd. These were signs that testify that the Father has sent Jesus. The Old Testament taught that when Messiah came, uh, he would do miracles. And this is a good thing because it, it separated the true Messiah from all of the phony messiahs. Uh, for example, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says, Then, and just talking about the, the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. The lame will leap like a deer. This is just fulfilling a promise here. And the mute tongue shout for joy. So this miracle, like all the other signs John documented, confirmed Jesus' identity. But let's go on to verses 10 through 18. The main idea, again, is that the Jews persecuted Jesus for making himself equal with God. So look at verse 10. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed... It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Verse 11. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they say that the law forbids him to carry his mat. Um, no, it doesn't. It didn't. That's, that's legalism. That's the very definition of legalism, adding to what God has said. Um, but... Uh, this, this man simply reported, and, I, and I'm guessing it was with a lot of joy. It's like, like, you guys don't understand. I just got healed. And the guy who healed me told me to carry my mat. Well, look at verse 12. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? <clears throat> what? No, that's awesome. No, Congratulations. No compassion. 
no, no concern or care or, or, or joy for this man, no celebration. No, you know, we're, we're so happy that your 38 years of suffering are over. None of that. It's, let's get to the important stuff, our rules. God forbid we should ever have that kind of faith or religion. Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. But later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Well, so Jesus says, stop sinning. He doesn't say, don't sin, or something worse will happen to you. Apparently, in this case, it's not always true, but in this case, the man's sin was the reason he was suffering. It's not always the case. But in this case, it was. Jesus told him to stop sinning. Some believe that Jesus was referring to something worse as hell or something like that. But we don't escape hell by stopping our sinning. Uh, this, in this case, I believe Jesus was saying that this man, whatever that sin was, had led to his, his sickness. And so Jesus was instructing him to stop. He was also making sure that the man knew who he was because in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So uh, the man, for whatever reasons, went and told the Jewish leaders, and so he's setting up the encounter that's about to take place, uh, really the bulk of the chapter. Verse 16, um, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Uh, he was violating their Sabbath rules, remember, not the law. Jesus was not a Sabbath breaker. Verse 17. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Look also at verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This, is, this statement is really what gets fleshed out in the rest of the chapter. Jesus said, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So why? Why did this anger the Jews so much that they wanted to kill him? Well, the second truth on your handout, the second truth about Christ is Jesus does the work of the Father. So in the Jewish mind, the only Father who is always at work is, of course, God. This was actually a, a widespread, common discussion that took place uh, really throughout Jewish history the fact that, uh, yes, Genesis says that on the seventh day God rested, but uh, he rested from his creative work, not from his uh, salvation work and his redemptive work and his re restoration work. So God is the only one who is always at work. He's the only father. And for Jesus to say, I too am working, 
after just working on the Sabbath, uh, was to make himself equal to the only Father who is always at work. In other words, I believe Jesus was saying here, uh, it's okay, guys, for me to work on the Sabbath. I'm God. I believe that's what he was saying here. Uh, This was a clear claim of deity, to put himself on the same uh, level of uh, working on the Sabbath. Now, uh, this claim shows the purpose of the healing, to authenticate the claims of Jesus. And by the way, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus also claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And in a Jewish context, this is a clear claim of deity. If you ask a Jew, who's the Lord of the Sabbath? God. And Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, claimed to be the the Lord of the Sabbath. And here, he claims to be working on the Sabbath, okay? So there are two reasons why the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. First of all, breaking the Sabbath, and now making himself equal with God. The, The second grace for us on your handout is then, uh, before we leave this confrontation, is have compassion and rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. The lack of compassion here on the part of the Jews is striking to me. And uh, I think it should frighten us that in our desire to be biblical, in our desire to to love the truth and, and teach the truth, that we would ever become so legalistic and so caught up in our, in our rules that we would fail to have compassion for people. And, I, and Jesus often in the Gospels is said to have compassion, and I, and I, I uh, trust that that is something that, that we should make sure that we're imitating. But also the fact that the Father is always at work and Jesus, too, is working, should give us comfort. We can rest in knowing that God is not a distant deity who is uninterested in us and the things that concern us. He is always at work. He's always at work drawing our loved ones to Christ. He's enlightening every person. He's convicting people of sin and of righteousness and judgment. He's working his plan of salvation and restoration. We should work. Absolutely. But we can also rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's go on to the third main idea. Five witnesses testify of the identity of Jesus. And this is the heart of the chapter. Uh, If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you can see that from 19 on, it's all red. It's all uh, a bunch of red ink. Um, In verse 17, the Jews rightly understood that Jesus was making himself equal with God. And so now Jesus is going to make the full case. It's like he's, he's expanding on verse 17. So in 19 through 30, we have our first witness, and that is Jesus himself. All right, so just in case verse 17 wasn't clear enough for us, look at verses 19 through 30. Let's start with 19 and 20. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. 
Um, Jesus expanded on his claim of working with the Father. The Father's working and he is working too. So as the incarnate in the flesh Son of God, he was in submission to the Father. This doesn't mean that he was lesser than the Father any more than a wife who submits to her husband is lesser than her husband. The point is that Jesus was not acting independently of the Father. Uh, a God who acts independently of the Father uh, was, was rightly deserved uh, death by the Jewish leaders. But Jesus is saying here that he works in perfect harmony with the Father and with the, the, the desires of the Father. So uh, in verse 21, he said, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So like the Father, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So whether he was talking about physical life, such as uh, th this healed man, or Lazarus, who we'll see in chapter 11, Jesus raises from the dead, whether Jesus was talking about physical life or eternal life, the Son gives life. This is a constant theme throughout John uh, and an important theme, but it's also a, a claim of deity. Jesus claims to be the life giver. Look at 22 and 23. Moreover, <clears throat> the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So not only does Jesus claim to have the ability to give life to whomever he wishes, but the Father has also entrusted all judgment to him. And so the purpose uh, of, of this, this trait, which is which is only a trait of God. Only God is the judge of the world. So this is, again, a claim of deity. But the purpose is the honor of both the Father and the Son. So closely connected is the honoring of Jesus with the honoring of God that to dishonor Jesus or to disbelieve in Jesus is to dishonor and disbelieve the Father. That's what Jesus says here. So, uh, this is big stuff. He's clarifying what he means. He's, he's making it clear that, yes, he's claiming to be God by saying that the Father is working and that I am working. Look at verse 24. Verily, or sorry, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. If you are in the habit of underlining or highlighting things in your Bible, I encourage you to do so with verse 24. And in fact, I would encourage you to memorize it. Uh, there's, it's, such, it it's really at the core of the, the invitation of this chapter. Uh, Jesus is inviting us to believe the things that he's, the claims that he's made. Uh, because of the miracle that he did at the beginning, um, but, but just to respond to him in faith. So believe is the response that Jesus requires. There's one condition for eternal life, and that is to believe in him. 
Now, since Jesus has the power to give life to whomever he pleases, and since the Father has entrusted all judgment to Jesus, he can make this wonderful promise. Notice that in order to believe, though, people must hear his word. We'll come back to that. But, uh, but, but before we leave this verse, notice the, the little word has. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's present tense. That's immediate. Immediately after someone puts their faith in Jesus, they have the gift of eternal life. And by its very nature, it can't be taken away. It is eternal life. And it begins now. It begins at the moment you put your faith in Christ. And he says that that person has crossed over from death to life. That's perfect tense. That's completed action. It's happened. If you have put your faith in Christ this morning, then you have crossed over from death to life. What a beautiful promise. So the, the third truth about Christ on that outline is that Jesus offers eternal life to all who believe. Well, in 25 through 30, um, Jesus is reemphasizing the key themes. Listen. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So again, Jesus is in submission to his Father. So the references here to the dead and those who are in their graves is interesting. It's not explained precisely for us, but most likely refers to several things, uh, such as the near future when he will raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, likely it refers to the spiritually dead throughout the church age who will hear his voice, hear the voice of the Son of God, and live, as he says here. And even the end of the age when the dead in Christ will rise physically from the dead at the return of Christ. Verse 29 is a little uh, confusing. It kind of sounds like works salvation. Um, those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. The real, the real question that has to be asked is, what does he mean by the good? Those who have done what is good and those who have done what is evil. What does he mean by good and evil? Well, first of all, based on the, the context and the rest of the book of John, that, that salvation is, is a free gift to all who will believe, uh, to, to, to interpret this as works salvation would be completely impossible. Um, it would totally contradict too much scripture. But based on verse 24... And later, when Jesus rebukes the Jewish leaders for being unwilling to come to Jesus and not having the love of God, 
I believe the good deeds in verse 29 Jesus is referring to are believing in Christ and honoring him. The, the evil deeds are the opposite, not believing in him and not honoring him. So in John 6.29, which we'll look at next week, Jesus said that the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So uh, I think that's what 29 is referring to. Look at verses 31 and 32. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. So Jesus knows what the Jewish leaders were thinking at this point. In the Jewish tradition, one witness, especially a witness testifying about himself, was not good enough to establish whether or not something was true. So Jesus goes on and he gives four more witnesses. In addition to his own testimony, he adds four more. Look at 33. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So John the Baptist is the second witness. John's entire ministry was Christocentric and, and a witness uh, to Christ. He was prophesied in the Old Testament, and he was the forerunner uh, of, of the Christ. Jesus called him a lamp. Um, chapter 1 says he was not the light, but Jesus here calls him a lamp. Uh, which is a, a sign of respect. Look at verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. So the testimony of, uh, of the works that Jesus was doing is the third witness here. Again, the healing of the invalid and all the other signs that Jesus was doing in this book were authenticating miracles. In other words, their purpose was to, as Jesus says, testify about Jesus, that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah Christ. Look at verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me <clears throat> has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so uh, in verses 37 and 38, we have witness number four, and that is the father. Now, when did the father testify about Jesus? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, at least three times during Jesus' earthly ministry, the Father literally, in an audible voice, spoke from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, at the transfiguration of Jesus, and at the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, for uh, the final Passover and his, his uh, death. And John 12 tells us about that. But um, Jesus said earlier that the works that he did were given by the Father. And uh, really, the entire Old Testament, the law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle and temple, numerous types and prophecies and prophets pointed to Jesus. And Jesus says this in Luke 24, 44, that, that uh, Moses and, and the law, the prophets 
uh, were all about me. Uh, which brings us to the fifth witness in verses 39 through 47, the scriptures. And uh, let's see, I already got started on this, so I'm going to pick it up again in verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you, uh, your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? All right, so on your... Um, this was the final dagger in Jesus' case here. The Jewish leaders studied the scriptures diligently, but Bible study, Jesus is saying, is not an end in itself. Let me say that again for community Bible church, all right? Bible study is not an end in itself. If Bible study does not lead to faith in Christ, Jesus says here, you do not come to me. Uh, if it doesn't lead to faith in Christ and glory and the love of God, which he talked about in verses 41 through 44, it's a waste of time. Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, Jesus says, will accuse them before the Father. Why? Because they claim to believe Moses, but they never understood all that study, and they never understood the, the real point that it was pointing to the Messiah, to Jesus. And the final verse is kind of like a mic drop. He says, well, if you don't believe Moses, how will you believe my words? Uh, his, his testimony. Uh, going back, he's tying this into the statement in verse 17. Uh, you, don't, you don't believe what I'm telling you because you don't even believe Moses. So the third grace for us here is to have faith and testify of the Son of God. So all throughout this, the whole thing, the testimony and the, and the witnesses that Jesus brings up here are, are challenging us to have faith in Jesus. Remember verse, 30, uh, verse 24, though. Okay, Jesus says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, um, that hearing, I believe, is great commission stuff. So, of course, Jesus was, was speaking his words at that time. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and he was adding all of the testimony and the witnesses. Jesus was saying, here is my word. Uh, but, but now, in this church age, not only do we have all of the detailed testimony, eyewitness testimony that, that supports the identity of Jesus, but we get to add ours. He invites us to share this testimony as well as our own. And as you know, we're asking, CBC leadership is asking all who are willing to gather family, friends, and neighbors to come together and read the Gospel of John. Just invite people, gather people, and let the Word of God do what it does. It is powerful. And John specifically was written so that people will believe. 
please consider stepping out in faith and inviting someone to read John with you. Now, I, I can't finish without telling you what happened to Abrahau, okay? Remember that Peterson said, I stuck to the single objective of helping him understand what the Bible was saying about who Jesus was. Thus, in spite of his rebellion, our meetings, though always electric, were debate-free. Meanwhile, my friends and I prayed that the Holy Spirit would accomplish his work of persuasion. After a few months, I began to spot signs of change. Abraham quit disagreeing with the scriptures. He began to see the relationships between one passage and another. He gradually changed from being a generally negative person to being positive. Finally, I could contain my curiosity no longer. He was so changed. As we sat down to study John 13, I said, Okay, Abraham, what's happened? He replied, Yeah, it's true. <laughs> what's true? Jesus is God. So? Well, so I, I guess I'm a Christian, Abraham said. But I, I need to tell you one thing. I'm politically active. I'm also anti-American. My friends criticize me for seeing you. Peterson said, go on. He said, well, that's it. I just thought you should know. Well, do you think that makes any difference with me? No. Then I said, I'd like to show you a verse. It happened to be in the chapter we were about to study. We turned to John 13, 13. Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. I asked Abraham, what does it mean if Jesus is our teacher? His reply was perfect. It means what we think and believe must come from him. We refer our ideas to him. Peterson said, do you accept that? Yes. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord? Again, his reply was excellent. It means he's the boss. Do you accept that? He said that he did. We never did, Peterson said, we never did discuss politics or economics. Abraham and I were now under the same teacher and under the same authority. Because of who Jesus is, he offers eternal life to all who believe. But people must hear his word. He is our boss. He is our teacher and authority as well. And he is inviting you to be one of his witnesses. He's inviting us as a church family to be more witnesses to his identity, to make sure that everyone hears his word so that they can believe and have eternal life. You can do it. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a pastor or a professor. You can do it. You can just bring people together and observe it, read it, talk about it, and let the Holy Spirit and the Bible do the work. Would you uh, please pray with me? Father, I pray that you would bring to mind people for each one of us, people in our lives that maybe we've never had the courage to speak to, witness to. I pray that you would, you would uh, prepare their hearts and their lives to explore the gospel of John.
with us. And Lord, I thank you so much that simply by faith we can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. I thank you for all those who made sure that we heard the word of God. And I pray now that you would use us so that many others can hear as well. For your glory and for your honor, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.